we are going to look at Luke chapter 2 uh, in the, where I was raised. Um, we always went to Grandma and Grandpa's house, which has passed along through the generations. It's still in the family. You know, it's one of those farms that's been around 150 years, has a little sign out front to prove it. And we always went to Luke chapter 2, and we covered it in the King James Bible. Um, I cut my teeth on the King James. If you love King James Bible, I do too. And the, the story of Christmas just doesn't sound the same unless it's in Luke chapter 2 in the King James Version. So we're going to have it read to us while we follow along. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary, and Joseph, and the babe, lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things, and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. We're going to look at Jesus born the son of man. And that's a very specific thing and so we'll spend some time on that. Jesus born the son of man. Now, the beautiful thing about that passage in the, is, is that it covers so much turf, there's so much things in there, that the hard part is actually staying focused on a single topic instead of trying to preach seven sermons out of that 
so, but I will, I will stay focused on the topic and won't go in all bunch of different directions. But one of the first things we see is that the Christmas story, the birth of our Savior, is for everyone. You see, that's for everyone. It's a global thing for everyone on planet Earth. And so we see the mighty and the powerful, the, the rulers, those, those in charge of things. We see the, the lowly shepherds. We see uh, uh, in the religious world, we see the high priest Simeon. We see Anna, the prophetess intercessor as well in there. Then we see the magi, the wise men. They are uh, foreigners from a foreign land. Uh, they are not Jews, they're Gentiles, and they, are, uh, they don't worship God as the Jews do, and yet Jesus invites them, they get invited into the story as well. And so we, we see just across the board the rich, the powerful, the disenfranchised, the, the blue-collar worker, the high and the mighty, the foreigner, the local boy, we see everybody, they're all invited into this story. Everyone, it's for everyone. But here's another cool thing about God. He not only does these global things where he invites, you know, everybody in, but then he does this very personal thing as well. Very personal. Becomes to me and you. And we heard that even earlier as, as Curtis shared. that For unto you is born this day. I bring you good tidings of great joy. And he shall be a sign unto you. The shepherds get it. Let's go see this thing that has been made known to us. All of a sudden, it's very personal. So again, whether you're a faraway foreigner or a local homeboy, whether you're rich or powerful or have little, it's very personal to you. So today, the message of Jesus is to you and to me. So don't, I, I never thought about this before until somebody said this to me years ago. They said, I knew God loved me because God loved the whole world, but I didn't know he loved me on a personal level. See, I'd never thought of that. I've always seen God's love being very personal. So today, if you thought, yeah, I know he loves me because he just loves everybody. No, he, he does love everybody, but he loves you personally as well. And so God invites us into this story. He invites us to be worshipers, to worship the king, this newborn king, regardless of where you fall into the story or what, you know, social economic level you're in, Jesus invites you into worship. But we can sometimes wonder, why worship? Why, why should I worship the Lord? I mean, we may think to ourselves honestly, I mean, I don't need God. Everything's fine in my life. All is well. I don't know why I would want to worship God. And, and sometimes people are very gracious. They say, I mean, no offense. I, not that I'm anti-God or anti-Jesus, but I just don't need him. Everything's fine in my life. You know, my work or my, my job or my relationships or I'm having fun or I'm doing life on my own terms. I don't want Jesus' terms. I want my own terms. And so we don't know why we would need the Lord. And, and honestly, although a lot of people won't say this, a lot of people kind of feel like that Jesus is like for us losers, you know, who we really don't have anything. You know, we really don't have any options. We really don't have any life. So I guess for those people, then, you know, Jesus is okay, but I don't need him. Well, whether we realize it or not, we all need the Savior. Even as as Jesus is inviting these magi, these Gentiles, these non-Jewish with another religion even. They're, he's not saying, by the way, hey, this is Jesus' opportunity to say, hey, God doesn't care what you worship, who you worship, or anything. I mean, we're all, you've probably heard this, all roads lead to heaven, all roads lead to God. Jesus didn't teach that. In fact, he's actually calling them in to worship him. And guess what? They did. 
They worship Jesus. And so he's calling us to be worshipers. Well, here's the reason why we need a Savior. When Adam and Eve sinned, this is the biblical process, when Adam and Eve sinned, all of humanity got broken. Now, actually, we even go past that. The whole world got broken. Everything got broken. And so we need fix, but we couldn't fix ourselves. Uh, a broken, sinful human being cannot fix a broken, sinful human being. I mean, we need a, a human being that's not sinful and a human being that's not broken. But we got a problem, and that is that every single person is born into sin with a sin nature and a desire to sin. So we're all, bro- we're all born broken. And so God says, I'm going to take care of this. And so we only get into like the third chapter of Genesis, not very far into the story, where God gives a little glimpse, a little peek into what he's going to do. He's going to crush Satan. He's going to raise up a a seed of a woman, and there's going to be a redeemer come. We get a little tiny peek into it in Genesis, the third chapter. And God is going to do anything he can to buy us back, to redeem us. Redeeming is, is a a business term or a churchy term, and sometimes people go, I don't know what all that means. It means to be bought back. Maybe you're familiar with the term ransom. You've surely seen some show where, you know, some super wealthy person, you know, they, their kid gets kidnapped, and they say, you don't get the kid back unless you give me a few million dollars, and then, you know, if all goes well, they make the exchange, they get the kid, kid back. We were kidnapped. We were, we, we fell into sin, and God says, I'm not going to have that. I'm going to buy them back. They're so valuable to me that I'm going to buy them back. And unless Jesus is the master of our fate and the captain of our soul, I mean, the, I think it's Invictus is the name of the poem where it says, I am captain of my soul. I am master of my fate. You, you don't want to be. We need Jesus to be, to be master of our fate and captain of our soul or we're in trouble. So we can't fix ourselves so God says, I'll work on this, and in Romans chapter 8, which is, no one ever really thinks of this, but it's a great set of Christmas verses, in Romans chapter 8, we see our dilemma, and we see a solution. In Romans 8, 1 through 4, it says, therefore, there is now, now, right now, I mean, think of that word now, right now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is so important to me that you may say, you say this like every time. I probably do because it's so important to me. Because I meet a lot of people that think of themselves as Christians, and if you pin them down, why do you think yourself a Christian? They'll tell you something like this. Well, one day I had to take a survey and ask me what religion I was, and I looked over all the choices, and I thought, well, I'm not Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim. I'm not an atheist. I mean, so what am I? Ah, well, I'm here in the Midwest of the Bible Belt, so I must be a Christian. And so they check Christian on there. But... This says, if anyone is in Christ, we've yielded our lives to God, we've given him our lives, we've received his life. That's a different thing than checking Christian on a survey. So I challenge you, if if you feel like that's kind of what your faith is, somebody pinned you down one time, demanded, what kind of religion are you? And you went, I I don't know, I guess Christian? Uh, Well, I want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus today. And Jesus wants you to invite invite you into a relationship with him as well. So right now, if you are in Christ, you're not condemned. Isn't that beautiful news? You're not condemned. John 3, 16 and 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
So God's not really into condemning people. He wants to see people saved and set free and delivered. Now, why aren't we condemned? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, there's a law at work, the law of the Holy Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and what? Death. Well, we want life, not death. We fight death. It's an enemy, the Bible says. And God gives life. For what the law was powerless to do, and that was weakened by our flesh or by our humanity, by us, we were the weakest link, not the law. In fact, when you look at the, the law of God, not all the laws people make up, but the laws of God, there's nothing wrong with them. I mean, I don't think you've ever read, you should not murder and say, oh, that's a horrible law. I don't think you've ever read, you went through there and says, you know, really should not tell lies on people to get them in, in trouble. That's, you know, that's a good law. You really should be happy with what you have and not covet what somebody else has so much so that you even want to steal it from them. You know, that's, that's a good law. So we look at the laws of God. There's nothing wrong with them. The weakness wasn't in the law. It was in us. We couldn't keep it. And so what we couldn't do, God did. It says God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus was not a sinner, but he wore a human body. He, he was human. Sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Now, in the Old Testament days, we would sin, we would pile up a pile of sins, we would go into the priest, depend upon how much money we had, depend upon what offering we would offer, they would shed the blood of the animal, and our sins would be covered. We wouldn't be held accountable for them for just a little bit, because we were really good at sinning. You know, we'd keep piling up sins and keep going through the process and going through the process and going through the process. And uh, Jesus, our high priest, he died once for all. I love the imagery in Hebrews. When he died, paid for all sins, he went and sit, had a seat. He was done. It wasn't like the blood of bulls and goats. It completely erased and eradicated sin out of our lives. And so he became a sin offering for us. And so he, Jesus, condemned sin. I like that. He didn't condemn us. He condemned sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in human beings, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now that line has tripped a lot of people up over the years as I talk to them, because if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, and you are a Christ follower, you love him, you're, you want to serve him, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but you can just answer this, and we all really know what the answer is. Even if you're a believer who really loves God, do you sin on occasion? Do you, do you get in the flesh at times? Have you even said, oh, Lord, I got in the flesh there. That, was, that, that wasn't Jesus. That was all me, man. Don't blame that on God. That was me. Well, people who love Jesus do fleshly things at times. By the way, please hear I'm not condoning it. I'm not encouraging it. I'm not wanting you to feel comfortable with it. I'm not wanting you to say, hey, then it's okay. We should not want to sin. We should not want to be fleshly. But it happens. And so, when we have been living for our flesh as a lifestyle, what that means is I, I want to do my own thing, how I want to live, the way I want to live. I don't need Jesus interfering with that. But then one day, because that law, the law of sin produces death. It always will. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to kill over dead, but it does mean that in the areas of your life where God's not Lord and you're sinning, it produces little pockets of death 
and decay in your life. So you might look around one day and go, oh my goodness, I've been going after my flesh, living for myself, but now I look around, and there's little pockets of death in my relationships, in my finances, in, in my, my health, and you just look around, you see all this stuff hasn't been working well, and hopefully you might come to a conclusion, I'm going to quit living that way, I'm going to change directions, and I'm going to go with God. And the Bible says that when you go with God, you're walking in the Spirit. Now, may you still do things wrong on occasion? Sure. But your trajectory of your life is in the Spirit. But people sometimes think, well, I must be condemned because even though I'm a Christian, I've still done fleshly things, so I must be walking in the flesh. No, they're very different things. Walking in the flesh is saying, I don't need Jesus. I'm going to live life on my own terms. Walking in the Spirit is saying, I do need Jesus, so I'm giving my life to him. And so I want to encourage you, go after God, and we have a wonderful high priest in Jesus. I love what John says. He writes, I think it's First John. I find a lot of things humorous in the Bible. And uh, John writes this, My dear brothers and sisters, I write these things so you will not sin. You say, great, that's awesome. Next verse. But if you do sin. That's how that was up with it. But if you do sin, we have an advocate, a high priest, somebody who, our defense attorney before God, who, who always, he's always living to make intercession for us. And so we have something wonderful in Jesus. So let's go after God when we walk in the flesh. Let's recognize it, change, adjust, do better, learn and grow. So we have this incredible sacrificial gift that's given to us. It's seen in Christmas. It's just so amazing. And I just want to use a little logic here. Just use these beautiful brains God gave us. The concept that all roads lead to God and all roads lead to heaven just isn't logical. Let me tell you why it isn't. Because God's brilliant. And God is really smart, really intelligent, really strategic. And so when you look at the extremes that God went to, to buy you and buy me back into relationship with him, it was incredible. God left the glories of heaven and clothed himself in a human body. He became a human being. And then he was brutally and violently murdered on a cross. Now, why would you do that if there were already lots of ways to go to heaven? I mean, if any road leads to heaven, why would you do that? I can tell you right now, if somebody came to me and said, I have a physical ailment that if it's not corrected, I will die. And then I discovered that I have the antibodies that will cure them. But in order for me to give my antibodies, they will, I will die. Well, thank God for Jesus because I'd be saying, you know, well, we'll be praying for you. Because, uh, but we'll pretend in this story I'm noble. I will give my life for you so you can, you can be cured. But then the doctor comes in to me and says, Tracy, before you give your life and we extract those antibodies from you, I just want you to know this. We have lots of procedures to cure this person. We have lots of medical procedures. We have pharmaceuticals that will cure them. Goodness, we have home remedies that will cure them. It is true, if they don't get this fixed, they will die, but we have a dozen different ways that they can be cured without you giving your life. How many of you think I would say, well, I want to do it anyway. I, want to, I just want to give an extra way to cure this person. No, and neither did God. God didn't say, oh, they got lots of ways to go to heaven, but hey, I got an idea. How about I leave the glories of heaven, confine myself into a human body, get brutally murdered for them to give them an extra way to get there? 
No. He, he, that's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. So, I want to look at this thing. I mean, Jesus just really would have been the silliest Savior ever if it was just an extra way to go to heaven. So, he wants to redeem us. He wants to buy us back. He wants to ransom us. And I want to look at something today that I hope inspires. It has for me. I've just chewed on this for the last few weeks. How just how beautiful God is to us and the beauty of this season, Christmas, where, where God became a human being and lived among us. And what I'm going to share with you, you may have never thought of before. You may have, you probably have heard it, but you never, may have never really paused long enough to digest it. Maybe you haven't ever heard it. Now, before you get too nervous, I do want to say this. This is not one of those things where I get up and say, I've received a revelation that no one else on planet Earth has. Now, if I ever get up and say that, be very nervous. That, that's, not a, that's not good. What I'm going to share with you, it's been known for centuries. It was known in the book of Acts. So this isn't some new revelation that only I have. It's just something that sometimes we don't pause to think about. Before we get there, I just want to set the Christmas stage here for this amazing reality that should cause us to even love Jesus more, worship him more, praise him more because of the overwhelming gift of this season. If we looked in John 1, we're not going to go there. We go there all the time. I don't know what's happened. Last two years, seems like we're on John chapter 1. I mentioned it probably 45 out of 52 weeks. In John chapter 1, we start reading through there and said, in the beginning was the Word. It's obvious the Word's a person. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, okay, and the Word was God. Now that may get us like, what? He with God was God? Okay. Then we go on to find out that this Word person created everything. Nothing exists but what he created it. And that he's full of light and he's full of life. And He's so bright that even the darkness could not overcome him. He gives life to everything, although those who saw him at times didn't recognize or give him glory. And then it goes on, and if we didn't know much, but we knew a little bit about the Christmas story and a little bit about the Bible, we start following through John, the first chapter, and we get to verse 14, and we find out that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became a human being. And dwelt among us, and we beheld the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And if we know a little bit about the Christmas story, we say, ah, so this word person is Jesus. Right, that's correct. And then it goes on to say, I think it's verse 18, says, uh, no one's seen the Father, no one's seen God, but the Son, who is God. That's what the Bible says, John chapter 1, John chapter 18, and, and the, the Son who, who was God reveals the Father to us. And so it's interesting that this incredible, amazing God, creator of the universe, the one who is light and life and everything that is good, this all-knowing, ever-present God, this God who speaks and galaxies are created. Do you know what this God did? He became a human being. I want that to sink in for that. He became a human being. Creator God became a human being. God the Word became a human being. Now, when he became a human being, he didn't lose his godness. It wasn't like the Father said to the Son, hey, as soon as you are in Mary's womb, you will no longer be God. You will just be a human being. So now we have this, this human being who is totally God and totally human. What? Totally God and totally human? Yes. He didn't use, lose his godness. Colossians 2.9 says this, 
For in him, in Christ Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Some translations say deity, bodily. If you and I could save ourselves, there'd be no reason that an intelligent creator would ever have done this. But I want to be clear about something as we move towards this. Jesus isn't just pretending to be human. He is human. God didn't just put on a body like a disguise and tramp around in it for 30 plus years and then throw it in the ditch when he was done with it. No, he really is human. He didn't cease to be God, but he's totally man. So here's what I want you to know. God is human and will forever be human in Jesus. Now, we'll look at that in a second because I know that may have been, okay, you just short-circuited me, but we'll see that from Scripture. And again, nothing new. You read the Bible, you'll come to the same conclusion. Now, you try to put your mind around this, and a guy named Paul who wrote most, more books in the New Testament than anybody. He's like the number one church planner, evangelist, apostle, everything in the New Testament. He has this, this apprentice named Timothy, and Timothy asks him questions, and Paul answers him. And Paul's answering him in 1 Timothy 3.16, and I'm going to suppose, because of the answer, that the question was probably something like this. Hey, Paul, I believe Jesus is totally God and totally man, but I just can't get my brain around that completely. And I picture that was probably something what the question was. And then Paul responds in 1 Timothy 3.16, without question. We would say it like this, hey, Timothy, you're not going to get any argument from me. Did that blow your mind? It blows my mind too. This is the great mystery of our faith or godliness. Christ, God, was revealed or manifested in a human body and vindicated by the Holy Spirit, was seen by angels and announced to the nations, he was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. Hmm. God the Word became a human being and will forever be a human being. I don't know, it's mind-blowing to me. Again, he just didn't slip in the body for 30 plus years and then throw it in the ditch when he was done. He didn't say, I'm done with this thing. I was born, I lived sinless, I, I got murdered, I rose from the dead, now I can ditch this thing. No. The other thing that blows me away about this is I have never seen a single complaint by Jesus for his human body. Not one. I'm sorry. I would be complaining all the time. If I was... The word, the first time I got hungry, I would have been saying, what's that? This is awful. The first time I got tired, the first time I got weary, the first time I went, I I need a bath. I would have said, this body's awful. He never complains about his body. Never complains. Never says anything, not a single syllable have I seen in scripture where Jesus complains about his body. Now, we're going to see what the scripture says, because this is the, one of the beauty of the, of the Christmas message. We're going to look at this. And, and if you're saying to yourself, I don't know about this, that's okay. I just want to encourage you, just read your Bible. 
Find out what the Bible says. I do have a warning. Be careful that you don't say to yourself, well, I've been a Christian for about five years. Man, Uncle Ned, he's been a Christian for 30 years. I'll ask Uncle Ned. Uncle Ned may or may not be very good in the Bible. I know it sounds horrible, but he may not. You can hang around for 30 years and not know a whole lot about the Bible. We need to really learn the scriptures. Now, if Uncle Ned is a scholar in the scriptures and studied the scriptures for 30 years, he doesn't have to be, have a Bible degree or gone officially to college. If he's, if he's just looked through the scriptures for 30 years, yeah, he'll, he'll know this too. But I don't know that he has. And so let's see what the Bible says. These are just three little verses. And I do want to clarify this. Jesus is not now in his broken down earthly body. He's in a glorified body. Okay? And he will be in that glorified body forever. And he'll forever be God and forever be a human being. Really? Yeah, in a glorified body. Please understand that. A glorified body. When Jesus was murdered on the cross, he was brutally beaten, filleted, and, and an Old Testament prophecy says that his visage, this was the old King James, his visage was marred more than any man. If you really study that out, it basically says this. If you would have seen Jesus on the cross, you probably would have asked first, what is that, not who is that. That's how badly he was beaten and scourged. When he has his glorified body, which we're going to see him coming back, he isn't mangled, he isn't a mangled mess like that, but he does have some scars he still retains. Let's look at this. We won't look these up. You can jot these down. Jesus comes into their midst after he's resurrected in a body, in a locked down room. The Bible says they, were, they had that room locked down. We would say this, locked down like a drum. It was locked down because they were afraid of the Jews and Jesus just steps into their midst. That's a glorified body. You, you, if you and I try to walk into a room that's locked tighter than a drum, we can't get in. We need access, but there's something about this glorified body that's different. One time he appears to them, and they think they've seen a ghost or a spirit. But Jesus says, spirits and ghosts don't have flesh and bone like I have. Hmm. Look at my hands and feet. Touch my hands and feet. And then he asks them, do you have something to eat? And they give him some fish, and he eats. That's Luke 24, 39 through 43. A third one, by the way, there's lots and lots of them you can look at. But John 3 in Revelation, John sees Jesus in his glorified body. It's pretty impressive if you want to read how Jesus looks in Revelation chapter 1, 13. But he does something really unique, which I'd never even seen until this past week studying this. He actually calls him the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a very specific term that means his humanity. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, which would be his humanity, and the Son of God, which is his godness. And, and John, and uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, refers to the prophetic thing of the Son of Man as well. The Son of Man refers to him being a human being. But if you want to read it, and I hope you do, Revelation 1, you'll find out, wow, this isn't the beat-up Jesus that was hanging on the cross. This is the resurrected lion of the tribe of Judah there. He is amazing. But he's still got a body. And he appears in a body. 
In Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 17, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, we're children. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. I love it. He did it. He broke the devil's back. He, he said, one of the reasons I came was to destroy the works of the devil. If we would have read on, it says, not only does are people held in fear, but they're actually held by the fear of death, and Jesus breaks that. So he broke the devil. He broke him who has the power of death, that is the devil. And verse 17 says, For this reason he had to be made like them, we're talking about the word or Jesus, be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for their sins or for the sins of the people. Now I know God's all-knowing. Jesus, the Word who became flesh, was born. We celebrate his birth right now. He actually has experienced. Maybe sometime you said, wow, I didn't do what I should have done today. I was just so exhausted and so weary. Jesus knows exhaustion and weary, weariness. Maybe one time you said, I just felt so angry or whatever. Jesus knows those feelings. Now, the cool thing about Jesus, the Bible says he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. So he can be a faithful high priest. But it's nice when you have an advocate who knows what you've been through. It's nice when you have somebody who can plead your case, and we have that in Jesus. And so he's a faithful high priest who's taken away our sins. If you are in Christ Jesus, which is what the whole Christmas story is about, if you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation awaiting for you. And there's no condemnation right now. You say, well, I had a really bad morning. Now, I know... Most of you here are not going to believe this ever happens, and it probably never does happen to any of us, but it does happen. Some people, families, actually get in fights on the way to church. Now, I know you all have never done that, and that's never happened, and, uh, you know, you've left the car mad. But then the cool thing is, we're really good because you've got to walk in the door like everything's cool. You know what I mean? I mean, you're, you've been like, oh, I'd strangle you right now. And then you, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Good to see you, brother. Nice to see you, sister. It's all good. How are you, Tracy? I'm blessed and highly favored. You know, it's like, and then you get back out to the car. Hopefully something happened in service that lets you get out to the car in a different attitude than you came in with. But Jesus understands frustration. Jesus understands all that. He understands. Now, he did it without sin. We don't do it. Well, we do. Lots of times we do it without sin. I think we are better as we know Jesus and we grow, but we still may have those problems. So this Christmas story is colossal. It's huge. I want you, when you think of Jesus being born in that manger, I want you to think about this this season. Next couple days, just worship the Lord with this. Hold it. You, O word of God, you, God who is the word, you, you became a human being. I don't know, that's, that's a big deal. That's the entirety of the Christmas story that God became a human being so he could die for us. That's what he came to do. 
He said, I came to serve, not to be served, and I came to give my life as a ransom for many. He did it. He did it for us. He completed the project. And we are the beneficiaries of what he did. So the word of God becomes a human being, forever changes him. He became human and provided salvation, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. So as we focus on this most wonderful time of the year, I just want to encourage you with this assignment. Over the next couple of days, let's pause to worship Jesus. Let's worship him with fresh wonder, with fresh amazement. Let's, like Mary, let's, let's take these things and ponder them in our heart and just have worship services in our own hearts throughout the season. I'm not opposed to festivities and lights and gifts and all those things. Those doesn't bother me at all. I just want to say this, don't let those things choke out you spending time realizing the little cliche really is true. Jesus is the reason for the season. And so it seems super wrong for us lovers of Jesus to let everything else choke that out. And so let's just meditate and think about the goodness of God, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. The Son of God. I got that part down. I get that. But the Son of Man just blows me away that God will forever have a body. Now again, I want to make it clear, glorified, read it in Revelation 1, you go, whoa, that's not the Jesus that was, you know, walking around with the disciples. This is a glorified body. But it appears to me from everything I've studied and everything I've read, just like he told, told uh, Thomas, he said, hey, Thomas, put your hand, put your finger in my hands, put your hand to my side. He told him, look at my hands and look at my feet. It, it seems to me that those scars will forever be in heaven. And we're such a cosmetic culture, we would have got rid of every scar in our glorified body. You know, we don't want any scars left around. Jesus wears them with honor. Jesus wears them. I, I am the Savior of the world. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. I am your Savior. He will wear those forever, I believe. And man, what a, what a reason to worship him. Next week, we're going to talk about setting ourselves up to win. We're going to move into a new year. New years always kind of trigger stuff in us about having goals or dreams or visions or where we want to go and what we want to do. And that's fine. Go ahead and run with that. We're going to look at scripture that can set our lives up to win. But we're going to figure out how to set up our lives to win as God sees winning. You and I are too smart to know and be confused and think that You've seen the bumper sticker, who who dies with the most toys wins. You and I know that's not winning. That's not winning. I hope you have lots of toys. I want to borrow them. hope you have lots of them. But I want to say this, that's not what winning is. And so we're going to look at what God's word says about winning and how to position ourselves in the best way to win at life. Let's pray together.